morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I'm one of the preachers here at GFC. My wife and I have a pretty amazing love story, uh, and you're welcome to ask either of us for the details sometime, because we really love telling it. One of the major factors in this story was the fact that for most of our time dating, Steph was actually in the Philippines, about a 15-hour time difference, which made things very interesting. And because of this and other reasons, we were actually very certain that we were going to get married long before she moved to the United States or I proposed to her. The major hurdle to that proposal was actually from my end. I was working at the time as a food server, and I had not yet received a full-time career in my field. I was determined to have a reliable job that would support my future wife before I made any commitment and asked her to marry me. Now, while this was an admirable thing to take responsibility for providing for my family, in my case, at that particular time, it wasn't a good thing, but had in fact become an idol to me. We had sought counsel. We had prayed together. We were convinced that we would be married. But I refused to take steps in that direction because I was hoping in the security that a career would provide for me. I thought a reliable job was what I really needed in order to be faithful to my family. And eventually I was convicted that I was putting far too much hope in a job. I was hoping in that security above the security of the Lord and what I knew he was calling me to do in marrying Steph. So after much prayer, I had set aside that hope and believed that my true hope was not in a job, but was in the Lord. And that would be true whether I worked as a server, or whether I got a job in my field, or whether I was fired and had no job whatsoever and was unemployed. And I accepted this truth, and I proposed to Steph. Spoiler alert, she said yes. Uh, and we began our marriage hoping in the Lord. I could stop the story there because that really is the point that I want to make. But I'll give you just a quick glimpse at what was sort of the conclusion of that story, just to show you some of the amazing ways God has worked in my life. God did give me a career in my field before we got married. In fact, my first starting date in my new job was on Wednesday, and we were married on Saturday of the same week. And it was just astounding that God would do that. And as I would set aside that idol of career in my field, he would then bless me with that later. And it was before I was actually married, which was amazing. Uh, today, in this text, we're going to talk a lot about hope. We're going to talk about the things that we put our hope in, and in particular, where we should put our hope when we're faced with persecution in the present and what to hope for in the future. So let's begin with the first point on your outline, which is to hope in the righteous judgment of God. So in the past weeks, we've been studying uh, the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and it concluded with a very amazing prayer. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is what we talked about last week uh, as Paul prays for them that they are sanctified or made ever more like Christ through the power of God until the work is completed at Christ's return. In 1 Thessalonians 1, we saw that Paul was concerned that the Thessalonian church would have fallen away in the face of intense persecution, which they were facing daily. But the encouraging word from Timothy had actually prompted his first letter, which we are now finished with and moving on to his second letter. This week, we're going to finish that, we're going to start that second letter, which is 2 Thessalonians 1, and this was written only a few months later. So that few months was not enough time for Paul's prayer to be fully realized, but it was enough time for the word of the Thessalonian church and the fact that they were enduring to spread both to Paul and throughout uh, the land. In this letter, 2 Thessalonians, we get a very different picture of how Paul views this young church. Far from being fearful of their faith, he's now boasting about their endurance. Because their endurance is in fact evidence of what he said in that amazing prayer at the end of 1 Thessalonians. The fact that they are enduring is evidence that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So let's open up this letter and read what Paul says about the Thessalonians. So read with me 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we boast about churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Well, so often in our culture, judgment uh, is considered something that we should avoid, or a very bad thing. For example, now, I don't judge, or don't judge me, far be it from me to judge. However, as believers, it's in fact a judgment it is our greatest hope. There are always two characters at question in any act of judgment. Anytime a judgment is handed down, we need to be concerned about both the character of the judge and the character of the one being judged. A righteous man must hope in a righteous judge. And an unrighteous man can only hope in an equally unrighteous judge. One exception, and that's Jesus Christ. It is only through the faithful work of he who calls you, that's Christ, that we who are unrighteous can actually find our hope in a righteous God. Look again at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, 
for which you are also suffering. So what is the evidence that he's referring to there? What is the evidence that the judgment of God is righteous and that we are worthy of the kingdom of God? Well, it's in the preceding verse, verses 3 and 4. Your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, this is easy to get wrong, and I know that I can be tempted to get this wrong very often. Uh, It's not the persecution or the affliction that are evidence of God's righteous judgment. Okay, it's not those circumstances that are evidence that God is working in our life. But it's the faith and it's the love and it's the endurance in the face of those persecutions that are the evidence. It's tempting to look at the situation to try to find proof of God's pleasure or displeasure in our lives. One way this could be interpreted is that I could believe that if I'm suffering, then I must not be where God wants me to be. The suffering is evidence of the fact that I'm in the wrong place. That's one temptation. Or I could flip it the other way, and I could play the martyr card, and I could believe that if I'm suffering, then that must prove that I am where God wants me to be. But in this letter, Paul is saying to the church that it's not about the circumstances at all, but it's about God's faithfulness to help us endure those circumstances and even to grow in love and faith because of those circumstances. God has judged us worthy of the kingdom of heaven. But how are we worthy? It's not because of the afflictions that we endure, but it's because his son paid the price for our righteousness. And how do we know that he's paid that price? Because we can grow in faith and love and endure even in the face of persecution. So what does this look like in our everyday lives? My first reaction as I was preparing this was to to really think that I'm not enduring persecution. I don't face a significant amount of persecution. And certainly there are places in the world that do experience bitter persecution and even true martyrdom. We work with missionaries who experience true persecution regularly, and I don't. But remember that it's not about the circumstances, but it's about the God who is faithful to us regardless of what those particular circumstances look like. So as I was trying to think of persecutions that we do face, if God is faithful, whether we're being persecuted greatly or whether it's not that significant of persecution, God is the same. He is still faithful to us, and we can still grow in love and faith and endurance. So, What are some of the ways that we can experience that growth in our lives here, State College, Grace Fellowship Church? Well, here are a few. When you can't be a team player and help your bosses in dishonest dealings, and so you are passed over time and again and again for promotion, that is evidence that Christ has worked in you and made you worthy of the kingdom of God. Men. When you treat women like precious sisters and not as objects of your desire, 
when you pursue dating in a way that puts her honor above your gratification and people think that you're just a relic of the past, it's evidence that Christ has worked in you and made you worthy of the kingdom of God. Women, when you hold to a standard of dating that allows men to lead but not to dominate, and then you're rejected for that, but you don't lose your identity in Christ, it's evidence that Christ has worked in you and made you worthy of the kingdom of God. Friends, when you're cut off from your dear, close friends because you tried to speak truth in love, but yet you don't hold bitterness toward them, that's evidence that Christ has worked in you and made you worthy of the kingdom of God. When your family can't understand why you would sacrifice a high-paying job to rely on the support of others as you further the kingdom, and your scorn for your waste of your education and the possibility that you had, but you continue to love, pray for your family, it's evidence that Christ has made you worthy of the kingdom of God. And when you take criticism or rage from people on social media for your stance on homosexuality, abortion, or any moral issue, but you refuse to respond with equal rage, but with grace and with love, it's evidence that Christ has made you worthy of the kingdom of God. Parents, when other parents criticize you for teaching your children that their heart should in fact not be followed, but is deceitfully wicked, and that obedience to a loving father will enable their blessing and their freedom, not their subjugation. And when you seek to draw the hearts of your children to God, and every day you cry out to God because you know that you make so many mistakes, it's evidence that Christ has made you worthy of the kingdom of God. And all of this, these examples, every single one of these, is only possible through the work of Christ. It's our sanctification through the Spirit that these things are evidence of. That we can do this is evidence that God has been at work in our life. And it's only Christ, and only Christ, and only Christ, and only Christ that lets this happen. Because without Him, our character is wicked. And we know that. But because of his work, we can put our hope in the righteous judgment of God. And that is astounding. That we as unrighteous sinners can be made righteous and can be sanctified so that we can put our hope in a righteous judgment of God. So our character is only transformed to that of righteousness through the work of Christ. And that's evidenced through the growth in our faith and our love and our endurance and persecution. And if these are evidence that God has made our character righteous, what is the character, where's the evidence that God's character is righteous? If those two characters are at question, the character of the judge and the character of the judge, where do we see evidence that God's character is righteous? And let's be honest, some of the things that we see in the world today seem to be anything but just. Can God be a righteous judge if injustice survives in this world? Well, the next part of Paul's letter addresses this very question. So let's read together 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. Since indeed 
God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from him the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. So it is right that the righteous judgment of a just God be feared by the unrighteous. I have an example of this from this past week. My wife and I, really enjoy watching the masterpiece British dramas. My wife especially really, really loves the BBC dramas. And if I'm being honest, I enjoy them as much, if not more, than she does. And we watched one this past week that had a courtroom scene where a very powerful sort of scheming man had maneuvered his way into a position of power where he was now judging, sitting as a judge and judging a case. And one of the cases he was faced with was that of a noble who had taken advantage of a servant girl. And he passed judgment on this situation. He stressed the seriousness of the case, how the lies were told and innocent reputations had been damaged, how important it was to prevent further atrocities such as this. And he concluded with a condemnation, not of the noble, but of the servant girl who was the victim. This story illustrates how hopeless it would be if the character of our judge was not righteous. What hope is there in justice if our God is not righteous? It is absolutely essential that God punish and fully condemn the wicked. It would be against his very nature to coexist with wickedness. But this isn't promised until the return of Christ in glory and power. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed in heaven with his mighty angels. Also, verse 10 says the same thing. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. So we can actually expect that our afflictors will continue and our affliction will continue to go on until that day. And to me, this is actually very encouraging. I can turn my hope away from justice in this world, and I can turn my hope to the righteous judgment of God at the return of Christ. Have you ever noticed that the more often you look at a clock, the slower it seems to go? Students, I know you know what I'm talking about. Okay, we will find in this passage extremely helpful for the same reason. If we are constantly looking to the now for justice, we will be so disappointed. But if we look ahead to the righteous judgment of God, 
then we're not looking every few minutes at that clock right here on earth. And we know that God, by his nature, is just. And we can absolutely rest assured that his punishment of the wicked will be full and will be complete. But there's a time that's been set aside for that judgment. And we can actually be freed by looking ahead to that judgment and not looking for it in a fallen world. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Why are we marveling? Because God's character is proven true. He is the righteous judge. And all of this will make sense when he acts and completes and proves his character on that day. And incidentally, that's also the day when we'll get relief. As it says in verse 7, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So that relief from this persecution, that relief from these painful situations, we can rely that that will happen on the day of Christ. So, if we know that we can hope in God's righteous judgment as he's declared us worthy of the kingdom of God through the work of Christ, and we know that his character ensures that there will be a righteous judgment that will establish justice for all time, then what should we do now? Well, Paul's answer is very clear. We should pray. So let's look at the last two verses of this section. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the partnership here? Do you see how we are acting in complete concert with God? There are two active parties, and we are both very active. Look how closely we're acting together. Verse 11, that our God may make you, God may make you, worthy of his calling, and that he will fulfill. What does he fulfill? Also verse 11. He will fulfill every resolve of ours for good and every work of faith that is ours. And how is he going to do it? Also verse 11. By his power. So we're truly working hand in hand with God in our own lives. Now think for a minute how crazy that is. Oh, I know who I'll use to fix a broken relationship. The very person who broke it in the first place. Kids, this is like when a younger friend or a sibling breaks something that you worked so hard to make and you were so proud of it. Do you quickly want to grab it from them and just fix what they broke? Well, we people broke the world that God had built, the relationship that he had with us. We broke it. And yet, instead of grabbing it away from us and just fixing it himself, he's working 
through us to fix it and to restore that relationship in our own lives with God through the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a hand-in-hand action. And in so doing this, church, the earth is filled with glory. Look at verse 12 again. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is like a thousand times better than Oprah. You get some glory, and you get some glory, and you get some glory. Everybody gets glory when God uses us through his power to restore our relationship. The name of Jesus is glorified in us. And we are glorified in him. And the only way that this works, again, is through the power of Christ transforming us from when we were yet sinners Christ died for us, enabling us to overcome sin and to endure persecution. It is only the grace of our Lord God, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ that brings glory into every moment of our broken lives. And so the glory of God should shine out and glorify him every day, not hiding our brokenness, but by exposing it and allowing God to redeem that brokenness. So church, pray for one another. Confess to one another. Be broken by your sin and allow Jesus to pay the penalty so that when God's righteous judgment comes on us, we may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God and not one of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it said previously in this section. So, as we look at those sections, as we look at those examples again of the persecution in our life, we know that it is God's glory, His work in our life, that enables us to grow in faith and love and endurance. And so, when we are passed over for promotion, we can trust that the Lord is going to redeem that and work in our lives. When our family can't understand why we're doing what we do, we know that it is the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work in us that makes us worthy of that kingdom. So, in summary, when we're faced with persecution in the present, and when we're faced with an uncertain future, we can hope for God's righteous judgment on us through Christ. And we can hope on God's righteous judgment to accomplish his eternal justice. And we can hope and pray every day that God's glory is magnified through our broken lives by his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your work in our lives. God, we thank you that you are a righteous judge. Lord, that you will not set evil aside, but that you paid for the price of that evil in our own hearts, Lord, through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, that we could be redeemed and we could come before you and rely on your righteous judgment, although we were unrighteous. Lord God, we pray and we hope that that truth would be made evident in our lives every day and that your glory would be magnified. 
Thank you, Lord, that we can come together as a church and we can do that together. We can share our brokenness and the great stories of the glory that you have brought about in our lives. Lord, we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.